0: It's Friday, September 29,
1: last Friday in September for 2023. And we've got a fresh new podcast. I'm Crash Pushing the Buttons, and Mary Danielson is here to uh, bring you an action packed show. Going to break it down, play by play, what happened yesterday at Lambeau Field. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I went to bed early. That's what happened. I think the people who attended maybe should get their money back, but I don't think that's an option. So, yes, welcome to Santa for the Truth. Uh, September is nearly in the rearview mirror. And October is right, coming right up. So it's the orange month in Wisconsin. Everything turns orange. My guest today is Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson of Answers in Genesis. And I think you will really enjoy what he has to share about his work with that ministry. He's from Wisconsin originally, and his research has been groundbreaking in the area of biology and genetics. And we, of course, believe that the attacks on the origins of humanity in Genesis are really an attack on the truth of the entirety of scripture. Much more on that in just a couple minutes. My Bible verse today is Acts seventeen twenty-two to 27 Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord, in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Pray with me this morning, Lord, you have given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And we thank you that we can know you and that there is no shadow of turning with you. Help us be a people that worships you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, just keep us ever mindful that you are only a prayer away in every single circumstance. We lift up our guest Nathaniel and ask for good health for him and his loved ones. Thank you for his ministry and the labor you have given him to do for your glory. We lift up all those that answers in Genesis. Thank you for their many gifts and their love of the truth. So we lift them up to you and this program and pray that it would bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Dr. Jensen is my guest, and he holds a Ph.D. in cell and developmental biology from Harvard University. He serves as a research biologist, author, and speaker with Answers in Genesis. His current research involves using DNA comparisons to understand the true origin of species, and he has published groundbreaking results on this question. In addition, he has authored Replacing Darwin, The New Origins of Species, and uh, Traced Human DNA's Big Surprise, An Examination of the Genetic History of Humanity. He's also um, uh, co-contributed uh, to uh, several books. Good morning, Dr. Jeanson. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me on, Mary. This is just uh, this is great. I I so enjoy uh, your research here. Now, DNA research has really made an impact in today's world, along with combined with advanced technology. Tell us a little bit more about what it means to be a research biologist in the study of creationism here in 2023.
1: I'd say, in one sense, it's whatever I'd like it to be, but in another <laughs> sense, it's uh, trying to find the answers, well, let me back up a second, give some context. I'd say for probably the past 50 years or so, to be a creation biologist, to be a creation scientist, is to play defense. Mm. Because the vast majority of the mainstream community out there opposes Genesis 1 through 11, mm-hmm. implicitly and explicitly they hold to evolution. And you're in a great minority with cut off from funding to do research, mm-hmm. cutting, cut off from academic opportunities, cut off from being able to use your voice to say anything publicly without fear of retribution, so uh, and that's not to paint myself or my colleagues as a martyr. It's just that's mm-hmm. a it's a reality check for any I'd say for any student who's thinking about going into science. There's a there's a huge mountain of opposition against you. Mm-hmm. However, the flip side of that is. There's some huge opportunities with little competition. To give an example, I guess when I, when I graduated from Harvard and came to the Institute for Creation Research, my parents asked me what the biggest difference was. And I didn't realize until I kind of exhaled and said, less pressure. <laughs> there, there isn't a, whoever discovers something first pressure, it's, wow, we've got a wide open field to go exploring yeah. that people are ignoring because they ignore the scriptures. And looking back over the past 10, 14 years, it's been extremely exciting how many discoveries we've been able to make so not to be all negative mm-hmm. but there's a there's a mountain of opposition there's also a, a, a wide open ocean of opportunities with some really exciting things happening. For example, right now I'm working on the pre-Columbian history of the Americas, making discoveries no one had talked about, thought about, and and nothing I'd ever dreamed of doing mm-hmm. when I was growing up in Wisconsin. So, there we go. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's 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 intimidating, but also extremely exciting and invigorating. And I'm I'm grateful to be doing it.
0: Well, and I love to see how God directs the steps of believers within the body of Christ based on their gifts and and you know the des- desires of their heart to to bring Him glory. Uh, I, I sat down about a year and a half ago with a fantastic video series that you did with Ken Ham entitled The New History of the Human Race. Now, I'm a history buff. I'm a genetics buff. So I immediately looked at that and went, really, there's a new history of the human race? Well, the old one isn't really working for a lot of people anyway. Um, but that got my attention. Now, the subtitle of the first of the 26 videos is This Will Blow Your Mind. Now, that is not an empty promise, um, Nathaniel. It, it really is amazing. Tell us how that series, was that how you kind of, uh, that was a bit of what you were studying at the time the things that you found there's obviously a lot of research went into those uh, those 26 or so uh, segments how did that series come about and generally speaking what will people find when they sit down and watch that
1: good question so i'd say for for the latter question what what's the content of it so it's i call it a new history because we're basically trying to tell the story of the people of history I think back to the History I learned in school, last history class I took was in high school, world history, U.S. history. And by and large, what we've all been taught, just because that's the data that's available, is a history of politics, a history of cultures. If I went to a Christian school, so we learned history of religion as well, Christianity in Europe, and so on. But what's missing, because we haven't had the tools until recently to interrogate this question, mm. is the history of the peoples themselves. So you can learn that Rome was founded at such and such state and that Rome became an empire at this state and then they were overthrown by the Germanics and, and people from the east at this state but that's kind of where the story begins and ends mm-hmm. and you never are told, I, I was never taught because no one knew the answer what was what were the Romans doing for a thousand years or so so let's say Rome is founded in, in 700 BC, that's still over a millennium, millennium and a half, after what most people would say is the flood. So, who did the Romans come from? What, what were they doing? In, were they even in Europe? There's a whole bookend to the story that's mm-hmm. left out, and the same thing could be said for the other side of it, the narrative, when, they, when the Roman Empire is overthrown, what happens to the Romans for the next? So, if it's 400 A.D., what happens to the Romans for the next 1,600 years until the present day? or or to make it personal, are Italians. The descendants of the ancient <laughs> Romans are Italian-Americans. Mm-hmm. Do, they have a, do they have any legitimate genealogical link back to the Romans, or has something else happened? So DNA is the main tool, one of the only tools we have at our disposal to answer these questions, and that's really the, the focus of the series. The origins of it go back several years. I had been, when I joined, and this is a longer story, I like it real fast, when I joined the Institute, Institute for Creation Research in 2009, one of my first tasks that I was given was to develop a biology research program. And my thought was, well, what, what, what are the main attacks on creation science out there in the realm of biology or a life sciences program? And my thoughts immediately went to Darwin's book, Darwin's Question, The Origin of Species. And so spent several years digging into that question because the annual budget of the National Institutes of Health annually is $45 billion. There's a tremendous amount of data out there for humans and so my focus shifted heavily towards humans for a number of reasons. One, just because there's a lot of data out there, but also because so, so we're one of the best studied species on the planet, aside from some bacteria, but also because there's a lot of biblical data. There's a there's a fairly detailed biblical anthropology that we can use as a template to go as a basis then to, to make hypotheses and then go explore the questions, evaluate them in the data, and That got started probably around 2015 in earnest and it just kept growing and growing and growing until we started showing the results in 2020 and and, and that eventually became the book Traced which came out 2022, March of 2022, and has spawned all sorts of research that's been going on since then.
0: Wow. And I appreciate all the work that went into that video series because it is jam-packed from one end to the other and I think watching it more than once is probably a good idea but I, I would suggest what do you think for homeschoolers who are studying biology, apologetics, history, genetics, genesis. Do you recommend it for, for some of the older kids, too?
1: Absolutely. I think, and this is not because I think I've done such a, such a tremendous job as much as this is, in a sense, the audience I have in mind. When I wrote the book Replacing Darwin 2017, the, the primary audience I had in mind was, was a college student or maybe I should phrase it this way. I, I, I read as I was looking up how to write better and, and about authors a statement that auth- authors often write primarily for themselves. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, this is true because <laughs> I wrote the book I wish I had when I was a student in college to be able to hand to my classmates and say, you believe in evolution, you need to read this book, 10 mm-hmm. chapters of science walks the reader through what the data are right now, have a heavy focus on genetics, and of course ends of the gospel. But I feel like this is critical preparation for any student. So if I have parents come to me, if I have students come to me saying, I want to go into science, what should I do? And I say, you should consider taking a year off between high school and college to get trained in apologetics, regardless of what you're going into, so that you're not bowled over in college. But I wrote this book in a sense as prep for these types of students as well. Yeah. And I'd say that uh, the book Traced is also a huge prep. It, it's focused heavily on human history, but all of these are helps, I'd say. They're, they're challenges to the evolutionary community, but but great faith-building and knowledge-building and, and apologetics preparation for any believing students who want to go off into the secular world.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's a great idea. Um, you know, we talk a lot about A.I. these days and the potential for tyranny, the potential for wickedness and deception. Um, but something good about technology that it has afforded us is current DNA based generation by generation family tree for human history. Now, A.I. is just coming into the folds. You really didn't use A.I. when you were uh, studying this. Right. Or did you? Was it in its infancy at the time? But does A.I. figure into to your research?
1: so far it has not okay. where it goes in the future is anybody's guess i feel like it's a bit surreal mm-hmm. thinking about star wars and other movies and and fantasy concepts mm-hmm. people watched and kind of enjoyed as fiction growing up and yeah. then realizing maybe this isn't fiction after all so <laughs> that that's that gives yeah. me a bit of a surreal feeling yeah. and i don't think robots are eventually going to replace humanity right they they're going to they can do a lot and it's rather scary to think about what they can do, Mm -hmm. but to be able to make decisions and process things, there's nothing like the human brain to do that. It it is a testament to God's creative power and design. We're thinking of Romans 1, that the things of God are clearly seen in what he has made, and even there's a testimony within us. And I feel Mm -hmm. like the human body, the human brain, all points towards a much greater intelligence behind the universe in which we of course know from scripture is God himself and brings us back to the gospel of we've sinned against him we haven't given him glory we haven't given him thanks and we deserve punishment and Mm -hmm. so God sent his son which is really what AIG the, the ministry is all about ultimately is pointing people back to the gospel I say my role as a research biologist is to go to Romans 1, or, or it's, it's based on Romans 1, where we know the things of God are clearly seen in nature. Evolution is one of those things that people use to suppress the truth about God and nature, and my job is to say, nope, sorry, that suppression doesn't work, let's get back to the real issue, mm-hmm. which is, we're sinners, God is holy, we need a Savior, and you need to do business with Christ. Mm-hmm. So, that for me is the, the ultimate purpose of what we're doing, and, and And the basis for what 's going on i don 't see AI ever interrupting that, yeah. though it might create a very different world than the one I grew up in,
0: yeah, absolutely, and no no human ever said, "Gee, what the world really needs is artificial intelligence I mean you know no one needs that. Someone has decided we need that, but we do not need that as humans. we need Jesus uh, now Genesis ten tells us all the generations of the sons of Noah, according to it says their generations in their nations, in their languages. Is this the jumping-off point, really, for the most current application of DNA studies? Is this where you start uh, to reconstruct the branches, or do you start on on a different end and move back towards that? How does the research work that way?
1: That's a good question that I can answer historically and practically. So to set it up, and to piggyback off a question you asked earlier, this specific research went back in a sense of 2015 when, at the time, using DNA that's inherited through the maternal line, the mitochondrial DNA, I felt we had pretty good evidence to show that humanity was only a few thousand years old. We could go back to Eve, since she would be the first maternal ancestor. We could see that mitochondrial DNA. We could see three major branches in the tree that I thought corresponded to the three wives of Noah's sons. There's your maternal ancestry at the time of the flood. And so thinking in terms of the biblical anthropology, we had creation and the seven seas of history as we'd like to talk about at A. G. We had creation, evidence for creation, the timeline, we of course, the fact that there were some mutations occurring as evidence of the curse, the breaking down of God's original perfect design. We had a, a, a genetic signature, it seemed, of the flood. And in my mind, the next major biblical event is creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, Genesis 10, Genesis 11, was the the natural place to go looking further for data. And so 2015 Ish, I initiated a collaboration with a linguist, my thought being fundamentally what Genesis 10 and 11 describe as a linguistic event. The people, after the flood, decided to disobey God's commands, and instead of spreading out, they decided, we're going to build a city, we're going to build a tower, and God forces them to spread out mm-hmm. by confusing their languages. But, my thought was, that linguistic event would have pretty profound genetic consequences. So one of the things we tried to do was to line up the linguistic map of humanity, because that's been done. We've got all sorts of language classifications. We, we've been able to group the over 7,000 languages in the world today. And I, I was working with a guy who was connected to Wycliffe, which, of course, they've taken the lead in, in, in the academic sense because mm-hmm. of this interest in Bible translation. They've, they've taken the lead academically in linguistics to, to help us understand where do we need Bible translations, how are these languages related, and so on. And then we tried to compare it with the genetic data I had. Well, long story short, in ret- retrospect, it's obvious. There's places you can line up linguistics and genetics, but you can change your language. You can't change your DNA. So there's plenty of spots where they disagree. Mm-hmm. One of the best examples being you look at African Americans. They speak Indo-European languages, Portuguese, Spanish, English, but they are unambiguously, genetically African. So that's really where then, so I, so I started in a sense at Genesis 10 and worked my way forward and then realized, wait a minute. and and, and I jumped ahead here, looking at the linguistic data and genetic data, we found that to get back to Genesis 10, there were all sorts of post-battle events we had to wrestle with. Hmm. And I realized my my own biblical view, in a sense, was short-sighted. It's not that human history stops at Genesis 10. (laughs) Even the Old Testament history carries on for another 2,000 or so years to Jesus, Mm -hmm. and the history of Israel is filled with conquests, migrations, Mm -hmm. movements, And if it's true for them, how much more so for the rest of the globe. Mm -hmm. And so at that point is when I flipped my approach to this whole question and said, why don't we start in the present and work our way backwards, unraveling all the genetic echoes of the history of civilization, transatlantic slave trade, the migration of the Huns into Europe around the time of the Roman Empire, and so on and so forth. And that's really what gave rise to this book, Traced, and the research in it, and, and the preview to that, which was that, video series in 2020, The new, new History of the Human Race, and lo and behold, once we completed all this, and I should add that the primary genetic tool we're using and traced is the male inherited DNA, the Y chromosome. Mm-hmm. It's a record of paternal history, well lo and behold, as we we're unraveling the history of civilization in paternally inherited DNA, when you get back to the beginning, you see an exact replica of the Genesis 10 genealogy, which of course wow. is a record of male ancestry. The sons of Noah and their male offspring, and you can see a mirror image of that genealogy, and, and if you, if, if anyone looks closely at the text in Genesis 10, there's a different number of generations for Shem versus Japheth versus Ham. Hmm. Those are helpful to be able to figure out which branches in the DNA-based tree belong to which man. We now know that, and so, in a sense, we've come full circle. Back where it was trying to start in 2015, we now have a very clear echo of the the beginning of humanity, and that's basically as far back as we can go with the paternal DNA back to Noah and his sons, and then outward to look at the history of civilization. So that that was extremely exciting once we found that, and so to make it practical, any male who takes a Y chromosome test, a test of his paternally inherited DNA, we now can say, this is the son of Noah, or this son of Noah is what your paternal line comes from. So I've taken a Y chromosome test. We did a public announcement of Ken Ham's DNA, his Y chromosome, and who he belongs to. It's not Ham, even though his last name is Ham, (laughs) but Shem, as so many Western (laughs) Europeans belong to. And I've had probably over 1,000 people email me. To, to discuss that topic, I have taken a DNA test, or can you point me to something? So, it's it's been a lot of fun, and and there's a, there's huge opportunities going forward.
0: Hmm. Wow, how fascinating! I mean, uh, I've often looked at, read in, through Genesis and looked at the Tower of Babel event, and then and then I say to myself, then what happened? I mean, something inside me made me innately curious about what happened after that. Because we don't know a lot, and there, there have been kings and kingdoms, there have been empires, you got Mesopotamia, China, Egypt, and yet I look at the book of Daniel, and he's talking about Babylon, the Medo-Pers- Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And those are the four that get emphasized by God for some reason to actually bring forth his son the first time and the second time, so he emphasizes those and we all know that that once babylon fell the medes and the persians got all their gold and then the greeks got all their gold plus their gold and then, so there is some sort of uh, thing that carries on there but i've always been curious that the bible doesn't necessarily record all of the dynasties or empires but only the ones for god's specific purpose and that that brings me to a mathematical question i'm sorry to drag this out here but i have a mathematical question for you You know, when we look at our own family tree, we start at one, us. We we start at who we are. And after a few generations going back, uh, we can find easily over a thousand ancestors, right? And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But then, some point, we get down to Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and it's pretty small again. You get down to Adam and Eve, and it's pretty small again. How do you get from the exponential number of ancestors to this smaller number?
1: Yes, that's a very it's a very fun question because the answer is a bit shocking. The first mm. time you hear it. it, shocking for me, I think. And that's so, so. Let's start back with what you had mentioned. It's me, you. We have any any person. You you try you try to draw out your own family tree. You have two parents, but your parents because we're biologically sexually reproducing species, we're not asexual. We can't just I can't just make a copy of myself. So mm-hmm. all of us have two parents. Parents have two parents. Grandparents have two parents. So every one of us has two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, 16 great-great-grandparents, and you're probably beginning to see the mathematical pattern. Mm -hmm. There's a doubling in the number of ancestors every generation. Well, if you work the math out, and you can do it with a calculator on your phone or even just drawing it out, what you find is you don't go back very far, probably less than a 1,000 years, and you end up having, in theory, more ancestors then are people alive on the planet? So there have been estimates that have been done about how many people were alive on earth in 1000 AD in the middle ages or at the time of Christ and they're based on archaeological surveys, based on some records that we have like the censuses of the Roman Empire and some of the Chinese empires and you can make inferences for other places on the globe and so I feel like they're good ballpark estimates. So you, you get billions of ancestors just going back about a thousand years. So now we've got a mathematical discrepancy or a contradiction it seems. How how can I have more ancestors than were people alive on the planet? And that's true for every single person. It's just, it's it's simply a consequence of the math of human reproduction, of us being sexually reproducing species having two parents, not one. So how do I reduce the number of my ancestors to make the math work? So it's it, you know fits reality. And you can't eliminate any, if you chop out of the tree any one of those ancestors, I lose one of my ancestors and I basically lose the biological reason for existence. I'm going to miss a chunk of my family tree, which means I can't be here. So that doesn't work either. The way you resolve that discrepancy is by connecting the branches. So my mother's side and my father's side must share common ancestors in the recent past. All of us must have common ancestors in the recent past to make this math work. So all of our family trees go out, and then they come back in. They get wide, Mm -hmm. and then they start connecting to one another. And that has to be true for purely mathematical reasons. And this has been true all throughout human history. So just to throw out one, I guess, take-home example... With the history of human population growth being what it is, and then to give an example here, we know, or current estimates put about, put the world population about 600 years ago, right after the Black Death in Europe, about 350 million people, and of course today it's around 8 billion. Mm-hmm. It's a it's an over 20-fold increase in the world population size. Well, you run the math, looking backwards in time, there's the world population just 600 years ago was 95 percent smaller, and again to make a long story short, you and I. Me and anyone else has a 95% chance of having a shared common ancestor just 600 years ago because the the way the human population has grown. So there's a tremendous amount of connections among every single people group around the planet. You can see this reflected in DNA because DNA, in a sense, is a record of ancestry and, and we can use it to reconstruct family trees. And family trees record changes in population size. You can see this growth, contraction, expansion. You can see, or to make it even more practical, I had my wife's side of the family take Y chromosome tests. So I've done mine. My mother's brother has done his. My father-in-law has done his. My mother-in-law's brother has done his, and part of my goal was to say, hey, my wife and I have a 95% <laughs> chance of having a shared common ancestor, being, what, 16th cousins or something. Mm-hmm. Let's see if we can find it. Wow. Of course, we did. Oh, wow. And, uh so that, that may be a little bit creepy or, or weird, but that's the way it is. That's the way the world is. There's a lot more connections across so-called races, people groups. We're all much more connected than we think.
0: Wow. And it has to be that way. I mean, the only way that works. And so then I guess the other thing would a young earth be essential doctrine in this research as opposed to going back 200,000 years or more. That, you know, when they say, you know, billions and billions of years ago and where did humans come along? It has to be a young earth. Am I right on that?
1: I'd say yes, and, and thinking back to the history of creation science, there was a time. I'm thinking back to the way ICR would Institute for Creation Research would do debates back in the 70s and 80s, and for practical reasons would tend to de-emphasize the age of the Earth. Ken Ham, of, of course, has has strongly emphasized it, and I would say, in light of that history, this research is grounded on the time scale you don't get these conclusions if you use a different one. We're doing research explicitly grounded in the earth Earth timescale and it's been so surprisingly wildly successful that I would go so far to say is the young Earth timescale is essential mm-hmm. to understand the history of humanity scientifically. You don't see the history of civilization unless you have the Young Earth timescale. That's one of the main points of trace, one of the main apologetic points is Look, we can see the echoes, the genetic echoes of the history of civilization stamped all throughout our DNA, and we see it only when we have the Young Earth Timescale, which is a testament to its veracity, and we're now in, in a new era, in a sense, where, I mentioned it earlier in our conversation, to, to, to be a creation scientist is to be on the defensive, to be in the minority. We're still in the minority, but the research has advanced by so many leaps and bounds that we're now on offense, it's now creation scientists taking the arguments the evolutionists saying, "Look, we've been able to discover this. We've been able to connect the dots here. How can you explain it? How can you give us something better when we've made we've had all these successes and made all these advances, yeah. which puts us puts us in a very different position than we were fifty years ago."
0: Wow, very interesting. And I know we only have a minute or so in this segment, but I do want to ask you, and you can ponder this maybe: um, What, how have the evolutionists uh, responded to you? Have you done debates? I know. This is one area of science where they rely on 150-year-old um, theories and such where where other areas of science have caught up to the century, let's put it that way, and now all of a sudden here's this 150-year-old, um, you know, because, well, they don't want to, maybe they just don't want to know and they don't want to bother God about that because um, they've already decided. But I want to talk to you about that when we come back. Another thing I want to talk to you about is the commonality of the human race. Now, here's a light bulb moment for me. We all have that DNA in us that goes way beyond race and we don't really know based on who's staring us back in the mirror who we really are. And not only that, um the Bible then becomes even more clearly the one book on earth that applies to every human being who ever lived. And so I, I you know this to me sets racism back to the stone age. Um you know having racism be a, a social construct, it's really not based in reality. I've seen the meme that places human bones next to each other of different kinds of people and you can't tell the ethnicity of that person from their bones. So I want to talk to you about that when we come back, the evolutionist response to the things that you're finding and we'll talk a little bit about uh, racism and all that sort of thing in this world and how it really serves um, mankind today. So this is Mary Danielson. We're talking to Nathaniel Jeanson from Answers in Genesis. His book is Traced Human DNA's Big surprise, so a lot to talk about when we come back, and I hope you'll stay with us. Our social media pages are shadow banned. Thanks for your prayers and sharing our posts at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Welcome back to Stand Up For The Truth for this Friday. My name is Mary Danielson. I'm speaking to Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson from Answers in Genesis and his absolutely fascinating book, Traced Human DNA's Big Surprise. It's an excellent book and there are a lot of maps uh, and color um, chart section uh, in the middle. It's just an incredible resource. We were talking about race, um, and we're talking about you know when we look in the mirror, Dr. Jeanson, we see um, well in the moment. Obviously, we live in the moment that way, and, and our parents and our brothers and sisters and all this sort of thing. And yet, based on your research, there it's not quite that simple, right? As far as uh, race goes um, and, and our genetics. So I'll let you take it from there. Tell us about that.
1: In in short, I'd say this research shows that the races have changed. The so-called mm. races have changed multiple times in human history. And what's fun is I like the idea of looking in the mirror because I think you can sometimes still see it. So <laughs> let's think of a, a public figure. Uh, I think of someone like Melania Trump, which if you look at her face, and, and my wife, of course, has heard me talk about the different races, so-called races. Now things have changed, and analyzing people's facial features, and I've done it so ad nauseum. She's kind of picking up on it too, <laughs> and, and, and almost probably groans internally whenever some, someone comes to our door, and I want to ask where they're coming from, and I take a guess because now I live and breathe this. But Melania Trump, my, even my wife has said, she said, yeah, you know, if, if you look at her face, you can almost she, she almost looks like if, if you ignore her skin tone, a tall Chinese woman. Because of her cheekbones, the shape mm-hmm. of her eyes, and there is significant—if if you have eyes to see it—I'd say—or once you notice it, it's hard to unsee it. I guess mm-hmm. I can put it that way. Right, right. There, there are what I would call East Asian-looking features—the shape of the eyes and so on—and many Europeans. And I'd say there's a there's a very profound and genetic historical reason for this. If you look at again the the main tool that I've been using, just for technical reasons is the male-inherited Y-chromosome DNA. And if you look at Europe today, and there's been many studies that have been done, and, of course, I think 60 70% of the United States is of European descent, so this is going to apply at home as well, people like me and people in Wisconsin and all across the United States. The vast majority of European descent peoples today trace their Y-chromosome, their paternal history, not back to the ancient Romans, or some sort of Indo-European people, or the Greeks, but to Central Asia, about a thousand years ago. So you go back a thousand years, my ancestors would probably not look like the Greek sculptures, or the Roman (laughs) sculptures, but more Chinese than anything else. And so, I think we see an occasion, and you can especially see it among peoples of Eastern European descent, I think the physical echoes of this, in the shape of the eyes, the cheekbones, and so on, there's there's a there's an echo of that. So, what does that mean then in terms of race and ethnicity, white supremacy, and so on? Well, the, the people we call quote unquote white today, the vast majority of them have their ancestors that goes back not to the Romans and the Greeks, but to Central Asia, wow. and their ancestors would have looked very different. And wow. what where it gets even more wild, and and I can speak to this authoritatively because we have the data for it. You have some Scandinavians. I think the percentage is. Around five percent of today's Scandinavians belong to branches on the on the tree. Again, this is based on the paternally inherited DNA that takes them back not to again the Greeks, the Romans, but to the Arabs. The Arabs were, of course, oh they invaded goodness. Europe through Spain. That would be the the Arabian Peninsula Arabs, Mohammed and company. You also have a, a Muslim conquest through the Balkans with the Ottoman Empire, the Muslims there. So you have you have Scandinavian today, you can trace their, their, their Y chromosome, the paternal history, their, their branch takes them back to the Arabs going back several centuries or about a millennium. And if you take the Arab history back, same branch, say to the Arabs, where do they come from? Because Muhammad is only the 600s A.D. So this is centuries after Christ, and of course Christ is about two thousand twenty five hundred years after Noah. So where did the Arabs come from? This same branch that I've, I've said is in Scandinavia takes you back to northeast Africa and likely to the Nubians, the very dark-skinned southerly neighbors of Egypt. So, so that's, that's wild in and of itself that you've got light-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Scandinavians whose ancestry actually takes you back to Sudan, essentially. And, of course, to, sort of the cherry on top is the Nubians at one point ruled and sat on the throne of Egypt, I think it was the 25th dynasty, so there's some Scandinavians whose ancestors were dark-skinned and royal. So, who would have guessed that just based on physical appearances, and and I think the physical appearances mask it because it's such an ancient history, but these are the types of narratives and facts that emerge from this type of analysis, which make it, I think, impossible to try to reconstruct any sort of racial superiority, Mm -hmm. inferiority narrative, Mm -hmm. not that racists need a logical basis for anything, but to try oh, to do it rationally, right. it, it just blows it out of the water.
0: Right. And racism is the product of a fallen world. It's based on the outward. It's not based on knowledge. We had a funny moment watching your first series there. My daughter said, Mom, wait till you get to the one about the Vikings. And she kept saying that. Wait till you get to it. Wait till you get to it. Well, the the person that you show, I think there's a, a child and a wife there. It looks remarkably like my husband. So now we call him a Viking. <laughs> But it's just been fascinating, and I had a DNA test, and my parents always said, you're German, you're German, eat your sauerkraut, live with it. Well, I my DNA did not come up German at all. It came up English. So, um, so I'm always going to be something very interesting to talk about. And we had talked about earlier... Um, evolution and how you're really turning that on its head with, with um, well, it, it's not too difficult to turn that on its head, but from your perspective and your research. Now, have you had any debates with uh, uh, those who are evolutionists and Darwinists, and, and how did all that go?
1: There's three incidences that come to mind in the past, I'd say, five to seven years. The first one was a debate I did with a theistic evolutionist, someone who Thinks God used evolution. His name was Dennis Venema. He was with the at one point was with the organization BioLogos, which was founded by Francis Collins, who was at one point the head of the National Institutes of Health, professing believer but a theistic evolutionist. God used evolution, and and seek and his organization sought to persuade the church to adopt evolution. So we did a, a debate, a live debate on a seminary campus, and I'd say he basically, as the organization tends to do ignore the arguments i was making his goal i think was to put it crassly to schmooze their goal is not (laughs) to try to persuade the science (laughs) they know science is mainstream they don't really have to 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 defend themselves there they have to make themselves acceptable to evangelicals like oh no we're we're, we're still good theologically so in a sense i'd say we kind of talk past each other the second debate i'm thinking of was one with a, a mainstream scientist i think he'd call himself at one point, I think he wrote about it being a bit envious of the concept of secular Jews—how you could be Jewish ancestry but not really religiously—and so I think he was trying to advocate that he to be able to describe himself as a secular Christian, maybe saying he grew up Christian but is agnostic or whatever he is today. Mm-hmm. Anyway, a very different approach to the question. We did an online debate, and it was supposed to be on replacing Darwin, the book, and I found out based on the when we exchanged the PowerPoints we were going to present, that when I looked at what he was presenting, I thought he didn't even read the book, which I feel like is par for the course. The vast majority mm -hmm. of the mainstream folks out there don't even know that creation science exists or that there's been Mm -hmm. rigorous research that's been done. But when presented with the opportunity to then deliberately ignore it, I thought was an, an extra level of hubris or, well, I guess it's just consistent and on brand. But what really takes the cake and I feel like is a, is a great gift to creation science is something that just happened within the last six months or so. Or let me think here. Actually, it's within the last year, sorry. We're in 2023, book came out in 2022. <laughs> so this particular incident was a, as, as a, I think he might even be, call himself an atheist, but a guy who's a professor at, at, at Rutgers, I think, a virologist, likes to criticize creation scientist. His name is Daniel Stern Cardinal, and he was trying to take on the book Traced. Now, I have to give a little background here to the history of, of the creation-evolution debate as to why this is significant and how this is such a gift. For decades, creation or excuse me, evolutionists have criticized creation science, saying it's not science. If you look at the Supreme Court decisions, the federal court decisions, if you ask the question, why can't we teach creation science in public schools, the answer you'll get from the court's is Well, because it's not science, and the way they define it in, in, the, in technical terms is they say creation science doesn't make testable predictions. They say science is this concept of exploring the world, knowing the world, where you kind of put your credibility on the line, mm-hmm. and you make a prediction, and then you test it with an experiment, and you could, in theory, be disproven. That's the whole concept of science, and they say creation scientists don't do this. Mm-hmm. Well, I put testable predictions in replacing Darwin, Some of them have been fulfilled and traced. Traced makes even more testable predictions. The point is we've contradicted decades of legal arguments against us and apologetic arguments against us, and in fact are making discoveries about the world advancing science. It's this great reversal. So if you're an evolutionist, if I'm an evolutionist, I would think that they would be excited that we finally have testable predictions, because here now is their Mm. chance to disprove creation science once and for all. They can take our predictions, they can go do an experiment, and they can say, see, you're wrong. Mm. That's not what this gentleman did to respond to the book Traced. He, of course, naturally said, I was wrong. But the reason he gave was not because he did an experiment, not because he found some new data to contradict it. He said, I was wrong because I disagreed with the textbook which I thought, wait wait a minute, you didn't just say what I thought you said. Let me give a little bit more background. It's not just that the the legal court decisions were saying we're not doing science. If you look at how evolutionists have criticized creation scientists, they would go so far to say that creation science is anti-science, that it goes against science, it shuts down inquiry, it says we've got all the answers, and it's opposed to the process of science itself, because it insists we have this holy book that you can't question. So, so then, in light of 40 years of this, to hear this critic say, it's wrong because it disagrees with the textbook, which I did a video to respond to that, point that out, and he got mad and said, no, there's actually uh, a, a long series of papers historically that you contradict as well. And I thought, oh, a holy book and holy writings, apparently, uh-huh. is what I'm contradicting. But to be able to, for them to respond in that way and say, it's wrong because our written down in ink methods disagree with it, I thought, you're embodying the exact criticism that's been used against us for 40 Mm -hmm. years. I I can't believe you've basically, that was a gift to us to say, to essentially admit by their actions, we have a religion. You've disagreed with our religion, and therefore you're wrong. We have a Mm -hmm. holy book you can't question. We have high priests who are going to interpret it for you, I thought. (laughs) This is one of the most wild things I've ever seen, but there it is out in the open. They're admitting this is religion, and that's why you can't do creation science. So in that sense, I feel like it's a profound confirmation of what we're doing. If that's the best they can come up Mm -hmm. with is we're mad because you disagree with our religion. I thought, well, thank you very much.
0: You you said it, not me. Well, they weren't ready for you. I mean, this is turning creation science – this is a new era in creation science uh, research, and um, they just aren't ready for you. You know, you just – blowing some people's minds and they don't know what to think because they've been thinking this for so long and they've never been challenged on it. Um, Nathaniel, we, we know from Genesis 11 that God scattered humans over all the face of the earth. It says all, and yet um, there have been plenty of continents and areas that didn't have a lot of people. North American history starts, we think, uh, we've been told, with Columbus and the arrival of the first Europeans. So my curiosity is really peaked here. Were there indeed indigenous people groups in North America, um, and where did they come from? I would love to hear your findings and insights into the pre-Columbian world, you know, what time frame we're looking at. I know that's a big question, but you guys have used a language and such to sort all that out. Um, What can you tell us about what we think we know about North America?
1: Let's start with what the secularists would say, because I feel like it's a helpful jumping off point and and contrast point so the the accepted narrative that has and is used heavily in in political context is that there was a migration from central asia about 15,000 years ago evolutionary time scale mm-hmm. And' so a single settling there was one group that came over and that they've been isolated. there have been no subsequent migrations, no interaction with the, with the old world, no connections to the history of civilization that we learn in school until Columbus arrives just 500 years ago. so 14,500 years of isolation, unlike pretty much most of the rest of the world. again there's this, right. there's this big disconnect which I feel like is almost insulting like it, it, it others if I can make a verb, mm-hmm. it others Native <laughs> Americans and treats them as somehow different than everyone else, yeah. which is is perhaps the first observation that should make us pause. That, of course, is also the basis for land claims, and we've been here forever, and, and, and not to delve into all the politics, but some of that mainstream view is behind contemporary discussions about who owns the land, who was here first, and so on. What this research shows, so so let me just stop there for a second and say, that fifteen thousand year time frame is based on radiometric dating or radiocarbon dating, which, if anyone's followed creation science, we we know that and there's a long history of knowing that there's problems with it. We're, we've got a number of folks working on trying to figure out a conversion factor for what that actually represents in terms of post-flood time, and we don't we aren't there yet with great precision. But the best I can say is. Uh, there were, there were likely people here in the Americas very shortly after Babel, if you convert that 15,000-year timescale to something that's compatible with Noah and the flood being okay. about 2,500 B.C. So archaeologically, yes, there are people here early. But what can we say beyond that? And this is where the genetics comes in, where the Y-chromosome research comes in, and what the, the, the male-inherited DNA research comes in. What it shows is, if you look at Native Americans today, actually there's, there's, a, there's a sad element to all this, Let's let's think of Latin America. If you look at Latin America's Latin Americans as a whole, so from Mexico on south, which includes Spanish-speaking and Portuguese world, around eighty percent of Latin American men have a, belong to a Y chromosome branch, belong to a section of the family tree, the male inherited part of the family tree, that is not native. It's either European or it's African, which I think is consistent with some of the recent research arguing that there was a massive population collapse in the Americas with the arrival mm. of Europeans. Mm. So that's a, that's a sad echo of all that. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at the 20% that remains, that is Native, what does that tell us about the history? What that tells us is that there was a settling, an arrival of Native Americans around the 900s A.D., okay, Mm-hmm. So, so if you think about, wait, we have archaeological evidence for people here right after Babel, yet I'm saying that there's a, there's a genetic evidence for someone coming over the 900s. That means there's been at least two settlings, based on what I've just said so far, which is a major revolution compared to what mainstream science says. And this looks like it's primarily the Algonquin peoples who came across from Central Asia. And I, I should add, this is right around the same time that another Central Asian people group goes West. So if they're going eastward across the Bering Straits of the Americas from Central Asia, there's another group that went west into Europe and gave rise to people like me. My y chromosome lineage belongs to a migration from that era. So th- this is already, in a sense, revolutionary, because it means there's connections among the European colonists and the Native Americans far more recently than anyone would have expected. But that's not the only migration from Central Asia into the, into the Americas. About the 400s A.D., so again, there's a European connection. 400s A.D., the Huns come from Central Asia and overthrow the Western Roman Empire. Around the same time, another group from Central Asia crosses the Bering Strait, goes over to the Americas. It's the, it, Among the Native American lineages, it's the dominant one. And apparently they lead to the downfall of the Mayan Empire. So, so there's another settling. So there's a 900s A.D. settling. There's a 400s uh, A.D. settling. There may have been a settling that gave rise to the Mayans, perhaps the 400 wow. B.C. or 1,000 B.C. And then, of course, we know there's archaeological evidence for the very earliest time period, post-Babel, which might be about 2,000 B.C. So, we can stop for a minute and just reflect on, on all this. What What's emerging as the picture for the Americas is not a isolated, static, quiet place, but a very dynamic one that is intimately connected to the history of civilization in the Old World, and I would say, as it should be. Mm-hmm. Why, why, why would we treat Native Americans as somehow different and, and alien? They're humans descended from Noah, just like everyone else, and why wouldn't they have a, a history that's similar to what we see all around the globe, as if somehow they're a different species of humans. They're not a different species of humans. They are descendants of Noah, uh, brothers in that sense, cousins, as everyone mm-hmm. else is on the planet, and their history is intimately connected to the history that happened in the Old World. And they achieve many things here. Some of what we're doing, this is is actually the main active research project I have going on right now is mapping out this history. One of the most satisfying aspects of all this is what I've just said can actually be found in what the Native Americans themselves have said. The Delawares have an account called the Red Record that's been dismissed by mainstream science that lines up exactly with that 900s. AD migration. The Aztecs and the Incas have an account of their history in which it begins right around the time that this migration the 400s AD connected to the Huns they come across. I have an archaeological book that talks about the Incan account and dismisses it as mythological and you can't trust it so this research based on the biblical timeline rewrites dramatically the history of the Americas and returns to Native Americans the history that's been taken away from them by mainstream science, and to be able to do that, and restore back to the Native Americans the dignity that was taken away, and the respect is is one of the most exciting aspects to me of this research, and and it, like I said, it's it's research that's that's ongoing even right now.
0: Yes, and I, I just so appreciate all that history because as I watched, um, your, the current video series you have on YouTube, The Lost History of North America, you go into detail about uh, the Delaware and the Red Record, and, um, I think you blow the lid off the fact that some, a lot of people are saying, or some have said, Oh, it, somebody made that up. It's just somebody's delusion. Well, you go through that piece by piece. And we have 11 tribes here in Wisconsin still to this day. I know uh, a lot of American states have, have tribal lands and, and First Nation peoples. And I would think that they would find this very interesting. Uh, is there, are you doing anything with having people contact you about any of their history or their DNA? Are you, are you able to put together a bigger picture by what people are, are giving you?
1: Oh yes, and and we've we've been actively inviting folks to come. I've mm. been delighted. We've now got contacts. I think in about twenty to twenty five different Native American nations. We've got uh, maybe around a uh, thirty Native American descent men who are willing to participate in future research wow. to, to to explore the Y chromosome side even more because there's there's a there's a huge opportunity just just waiting to be had to explore this even further and in greater depth to connect all the dots. We're going to have even more videos coming out. So next month, October, we're going to have one on the Sioux and Catawban language family and their history, which is heavily going to be based on what they said. And I will add, uh, this is something that just came to me more recently, I think you can see in the red record a mention of the Sioux and Catawban peoples and coming to the aid of of some of the Delawares in one of the greatest battles in North America before Europeans arrived. So there's there's all sorts of wild stuff emerging, I mean, it makes sense because it basically then y- you see North North American history play out in, in ways European history and mm-hmm. Chinese history and, and, and human history mm-hmm. has played out all around the globe, and at, at my hope is this this reduces the otherness that exists between yeah. European Americans, Native Americans, like, wait a minute, we're not all that different from one another. Mm-hmm. The histories are connected, and even if it's Something subconscious, this this otherness that's just been in, in, in Western culture for a while. My hope is it diminishes through this and promotes more cooperation, unity, mm-hmm. respect between the two groups with time. And if people do want to contact me, y- they can go to our, our homepage. The the web address is answersingenesis.org/slash/go-g-o/slash-traced-t-r-a-c-e-d. The name of the book. And they'll find it. People can scroll down there. So there's a, there's a web portal to enter name, email, info. It goes directly to my inbox, and this is how I've been able to contact Great. Uh, about over 1,000 people overall. And then, I, like I said, about uh, we've got contacts in about 20, 20, 25 different or th- 30 different nations. Native American nations to advance this research forward. This will eventually be a book that I, I, I was just outlining this week on the lost history of North America. But more videos coming for free mm-hmm. on our on our Answers and Genesis YouTube channel. And very much would would welcome uh, contacts from people of Native American descent participation in this study because I can see this basically taking the rest of my career. There's just yeah. so many opportunities <laughs> and so many exciting things happening. And again, it's all grounded on not just the biblical anthropology and this vague concept of creation, but explicitly on the young Earth time frame. This is a necessary part of science going forward. This is a new era for creation science. Mm -hmm. We've been on the defensive for so long. Now we're taking the lead on questions that have long been a mystery. And... It's, it's, it, it. I find it extremely exciting.
0: It is exciting, and I just appreciate your research on this. And I know there were a lot of Native, uh, First Nation tribes that went up into Canada as well. So this is just a, it's, you know, it's a continent, and there are a lot of people uh, involved here. And I know you have something called the the Hidden History of Every People project. I mean, what an incredible thing to take on, and we so appreciate that. Uh, if people want to watch these videos, I highly recommend the video series, uh, the history, uh, the new history of the human race. That's on the Answers in Genesis site on youtube and then also the lost history of north america which i found just absolutely fascinating and i'm looking forward to more that you do on that uh, we are pretty much out of time i think we could have gone another hour easily but dr jensen thank you so much for your time and your research and just uh you know where god has put you to to find these things and to further show us that we are of one blood and genesis and the book of acts as i opened with it is absolutely true. So, um, just thank you so much for all your work, and I hope we can do this again sometime. Thanks
1: for letting me wax eloquent about one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> yes. it's, it's, I'm grateful for the opportunity, Mary. Yeah, it was
0: just it was wonderful. And I think you you just uh, there's a lot of uh, blown minds out there somewhere. So, uh, Monday it's a fresh new podcast on Stand Up for the Truth. Crash's guest will be Sean Patrick Terrio of Mark37.com. Sean will expose how big tech companies are designing their products to control every aspect of our lives and businesses. Uh there are free and affordable alternatives. It's all about open source. Monday, nine AM Central on stand up for the truth. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen to that. First Corinthians fifteen, fifty eight. Thank you so much for joining me. Also on Tuesday we have um uh Philip uh, Philip Zodiades. And that's, he has a very interesting testimony, so we're looking forward to that. Thank you so much, and I hope everyone has a wonderful, safe weekend in Jesus. If
1: you don't find your favorite podcast on our YouTube channel, that's Q90FF Radio on YouTube, search for it on our Rumble channel, which is CTR Online, CTR Online Rumble. Either way, thanks for subscribing to our video channels as well.